Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So, Captain Freedom, it looks like it's curtains for you. When my ninjas throw that switch, the trapdoor opens and my beautiful piranha fish will devour everything except your silly red, white, and blue uniform. <laughs> That's where you're wrong, T-Woo Fat. It takes more than an interstellar crime lord like you to kill me. Captain Freedom is an idea. Captain Freedom is a cry that rings through the galaxy and... Wait! What? Did you call me T. Wu Fat? My name is T. Wu Fong. Legally T. Wu Fong Fastenberg, but I don't use the hyphenated part when I'm being a supervillain. No, I said Fong, not Fat. You said Fat! That was kind of a dig, right? I know I've put on some weight. It's mostly stress eating. I vaporized the Guardians of Justice. That was very tense. And my concubines don't finish their meals. I don't even notice it, but I'm finishing their chips. Look, we all overeat sometimes. That doesn't make you a bad person. I am a bad person. I'm an intergalactic supervillain. I just hate being a fat intergalactic supervillain. I had no idea you were struggling so much with this. Last month, I went to a workshop for bad guys. It was all about taking back our body images. It really helped. And then you say this fat thing. I'm so sorry. If I had any idea... I don't even feel like killing you now. I'm too depressed. You want to order sandwiches or something? See, that's the kind of cycle of emotional eating you really need to break. True that. I tell you what. I'll let you go. I'm not going to kill you until I lose 30 pounds. Okay, yeah, and that creates an incentive for diet discipline. Damn straight. The next time I see you, I'll be wearing my old villain pants with the narrow waist. And you'll be fish food. Go! Good luck, Wu Fong. On our show today, the nose tackles fat in the news, the Apple Watch, and a mysterious quotation. And now he thinks this dress makes him look fat, but he's wearing it anyway. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, so we are going to begin with the uh, with, and it's all Irene Papoulos' fault. However, <laughs> we are going to begin. It really is true. There's been a lot of things in the news that have to do with fat and weight. I mean, maybe there always are a lot of things in the news. It's it's now apparently an international obsession. But just to run through a few of them, uh, Candace Bergen, who is perfect and always will be perfect, nonetheless has put on some weight, and she's touring in support of a new memoir. I did. I saw her on CBS Sunday Morning or one of the many shows she's done, and she just she just talks about it. She says. Let me just come right out and say it. I'm fat. She talks about how much she likes food. Uh, she doesn't feel bad about this at all. Good for her, I say. Uh, and but it's it's kind of it's all over the place. There was a front page story in the New York Times about how the FBI is now concerned that their agents are getting too fat. And apparently, their agents do a lot of stress eating. After 9/11, they were eating too much and not getting out in the field as much, and too much desk work. So the FBI is uh, cracking down. Uh, David Cameron's lost a bunch of weight and bragging about it in public settings. Um, meanwhile, over in France, uh, there is there actually there's actual actual criminal penalties contemplated for um, hiring models who are too super thin. I think I got most of them here. So so Irene Papoulos was the one who brought this all to us in a basket 
Uh, and we have actually a term here on, oh, I haven't even introduced everybody. Uh, first of all, I should say, from Heartbeat Ensemble, we have Tanisha Dugan from Trinity Cine Studio. We have James Hanley, and from Trinity College, we have Irene Papoulis. So we have a term of art on the nose. Whether she's even here or now, not, we call it the Papoulian through line. You know, can you sort of look at all the topics and see how they interrelate? Well, I mean, with this bunch of topics, it's easy to see how they interrelate. So we need an, a, a Papoulian uber through line to tell us, why we're talking about them all at once. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, you don't well, have to. That's too yeah. much pressure. Um, it's going to make well, you want to eat. <laughs> yeah, it's going to make... And it's, you know, even superheroes have thin pants. You know, I think that's kind of... You know, we all... There's something... No, well, super, super villains. Oh, so I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, super villain. Yeah, no, that yeah, guy, that yeah, he wears he's his, not a super he wears his fat pants when he's, you know, when he's not being a super villain. When he's not being... Um, you know, and it's spring and everybody starts thinking about, you know, I went to the doctor recently and found out that I weighed 20 pounds more than I had imagined that I did. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, and that just makes everything seem worse because I always say, you know, fat is a feminist issue. I've thought a lot about that. You know, I understand it. Blah, blah, blah. You have to do all this stuff. But still, there's this anxiety. Why? Well, part of it is because you know, are for obvious reasons about our culture. And I think there's also an issue of, you know, sort of perceived morality. You know, if you're a good person, if you're a really good person, then you're not going to be overweight because you're going to have everything under control. And so there's this sort of feeling like, oh, things aren't in control or, you know, anyway. So that's my personal side of it. And then I then I heard the story about the models and I started to think about, you know, like, so they're getting an $80,000 fine if they, in France, if they hire models that are too thin. And that just made me start thinking about how, where is the thinness? You know, so there's 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 such narrow because obviously the models do have to be quite thin, but not that much too thin. You know, and so the whole idea about these 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 scales about how we're supposed to be. And so Candace Bergen, as Colin said, looks great, but a lot of people might consider her overweight. And so she's on the other side of the parameter. And it's like there's this narrow parameter that follows us all around and we feel so uncomfortable about it. Women in particular, but then so now there's this stuff about men too. So that's interesting. Well, I mean, we may come back to the whole question of obviously models have to be thin. Uh, maybe we'll come back to that in just a second. But James, uh, let's just jump on another thing that she said, which is that sometimes we arrogate to uh, the idea of weight loss some kind of moral superiority. That's pretty clearly what David Cameron's doing, right? He's, right. Go ahead. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think in England, um, the, it's very interesting that England has adopted a very sort of uh, actually the very American public relations firms that run American uh, political campaigns. They've adopted them wholeheartedly. And one of the things that uh, David Cameron is having difficulty about is appearing to be other than his origins uh, as being a patrician sort of oligarch, somebody who's, uh, you know, not just the head of this conservative party, but also somebody who has a privileged background and the people he's losing are the ordinary folks. And so there's a uh, all of a sudden, un uh, seemingly uncharacteristically, he has an interview where he uh, talks about, oh, how his wife uh, chooses his clothes, and by the way, he's on a diet. And I think he described the diet as a patriotic struggle. A great patriotic <laughs> A great patriotic struggle, which really, uh, you know, is like quite a performance, really. But the idea there is to somehow 
endear a person who's somewhat remote, seen as somewhat remote, as being plain folks and dealing with the sort of plain, ordinary things. And Does I think everyone it, have their wife by their clothes. Why is that an ordinary? <laughs> well, in England, in England, I think that it's a uh, you know, there's a, it's, it gets very complicated in England because remember that Margaret Thatcher, who actually was working class, was the daughter of a grocer, and would normally be perceived as being. A, uh, a person who's part of the uh, great masses, as it were, but actually she so completely abrogated herself to the power structure, the male power structure, and in fact tried to portray herself as one of the guys that 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 this creates a very sort of complicated dissonance in British politics, and Cameron is 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 part of that, I think, and so it gets to very complicated levels. So that the yes, actually saying that um, you're concerned about your weight is an indication that well, I'm not this you know remote sort of entitled power person who controls things, that I'm actually worried about things and that I actually listen to my wife, mm. which is kind of like a, a it's, it's kind of a double-edged oh, sword. Man. You I can imagine picking that apart. It seems like a very low bar to <laughs> yeah. clear somehow. Yeah. Yes. In terms of proving that you're a human being. I let but, her buy my clothes. <laughs> yeah. But that, you have to see that that's England and, and the overlay of all of that is the class structure, which is very, very powerful in a way that class is not here, where class is largely a language of money. But in England, it's a lot. It's, it's it's still very much a matter of where you come from and how you speak and all the rest of it. So, yes, it it does have that significance. Something about what you said about uh, it being an English thing to want to lose, want to struggle with your weight, but winning seems to also be a part of the narrative, which seems distinctly <laughs> un-American. Uh, you know. Well, I think also I was, uh, you know, as you've all been talking, I've also been thinking a little bit about the fact that some of this is there's something very public about all this too, you know, and and this notion that Cameron would be talking to the press about uh, the fact that he has lost 13 pounds in three months by renouncing peanuts and cookies and cutting down on carbs. This is, you know, in some ways, I don't, I, it's hard to imagine. I don't know. Heath or – I mean I'm thinking some of the other, you know, British prime ministers. <laughs> it's kind of hard Churchill. to imagine. Churchill. Really hard, yes, right? say. It's really hard to imagine. But it's hard to imagine any we British prime minister. We will win this war. Yeah. But I mean it's hard to imagine Churchill losing weight. That's, that's a, But it's also hard to imagine almost any British prime minister sharing. There's kind of an oversharing quality here. And, and there – I think that is an American thing. And I – I located – I could be wrong, but I located a little bit with Oprah as dieting as this kind of spectator thing, right? Mm -hmm. Oprah would come on and tell people like how much weight she lost and they cla – I sent you a cartoon strip. <laughs> people would kind of clap for <laughs> she, her and stuff. She, she hauled on a, uh, a, a little truck filled with, with meat fat, right, at one point saying this was how much right. weight oh, she had right, lost. Right, well, right. as I recall, Colin McEnroe did that too. I have, I have done it once, yes. Uh, <laughs> you, you, it was a very public – Weight weight loss, right? I did, Pledge. and and well, it was all. And partly that was. I think one reason you do that, do it publicly, is to keep yourself honest. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I mean, it used to be sort of something that you sort of. It was more like I hope my doctor doesn't tell me <laughs> that I weigh a lot more than I think I do. And you know, it used to be like this thing that people didn't talk about all that much, and it's now. This very, very sort of public kind of angsting. You absolutely hit on something. Making it public does hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. I have this show in November where I'm playing someone who is dying of cancer. Mm -hmm. And that is – and I keep talking to my cast members like knowing that's happening in November is my motivation. And mm -hmm. someone said, well, you have a son and there's all these health things. And I said, nope. Knowing that I have to stand in public in front of others declaring this kind of life mm -hmm. is my motivation. 
the, the thing that Irene's talking about, I did this uh, on the old uh, radio station I used to be on where I was you know, pretty publicly the House liberal. And so what I did was I announced that I would give – and it was quite a lot of money. I think it might have been $500 to the Republican Party of Connecticut if I couldn't lose this X amount of weight in X amount of time. <laughs> and the Republican state chairman was there on that day for this weigh-in. And, you had a and contract or something? I, had a, I, I, a I think I signed a contract. Yeah, this is, there's a guy down at Yale who kind of had developed that thing. But there's something grotesque about it all too. Mm-hmm. I mean there really ought to be people's – people ought to make it their private business as but opposed it, to their public business. Though it's so funny because it's very public because everyone looks at you, right? Yeah. So well, it's I, not – you're not really And it's also an anything. indication of your ability to – your success, right? right? The thinner you are, the more successful you are, the more beautiful you are. I think there's a reason that it's public. It's because it, it, it indicates what you can achieve in your life. Um, when you're heavier, or at least I find this personally, when I'm heavier, I feel like I am sucking. And I think you talked a little bit about this. Like I'm sucking at life the heavier I am. The thinner I am, the more, you know, there you go, kid. You're really doing the thing you need to be doing. Wait, wait you're working I, I don't on think that. it's I'm sucking at life. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I'm <laughs> sucking at life. It's a little that bit was, more it's, it's difficult. We're going to have a segment on, people, on, on the misattribution of quotes uh, <laughs> later on in the show. But, yeah. Well, no, actually, I want to go back to what you said, too, where you said you said fat is a feminist issue. So oh, yeah. for, for people yeah. who aren't. Well, yeah, I mean, what does that mean? um, Well, first of all, the idea that, you know, women are supposed to um, adhere to a standard set by our culture, right, or set by men in particular um, about how we're supposed to look and that if we're overweight, like Candace Bergen, then there's something, you know, uh, unattractive. You know, it's impossible to be attractive and also be overweight. And that whole dynamic that's the history of, well, you know, It's a, it's a commodification of image which sells, that sells a lot of things and it's a creation of something that then people have to feel they adhere to rather than seeing it as just an image. Like, for instance, an impossibly thin model where a dress is something that sells something uh, in, in a kind of a fantasy and it's a male fantasy that is bought into by a whole industry. And so ordinary people who are actually living ordinary lives have to negotiate that. And if they don't, if we don't, we feel like there's something wrong with exactly. us. And so that's the whole history of eating disorders, et cetera. I have and, to say this, but I feel like Candace Bergen is a terrible example because she's, she was so thin and so beautiful for so mm-hmm. long. And not to throw this sort of ageist idea into the pot, but she is getting older and it is more difficult to maintain your weight as you get older. Right. So she's in some ways to me gets a pass because she was so thin and so beautiful for so long. And now she's in a way saying, I'm living, yes, I'm fat, but I'm living my life to its fullest now. But yeah, but how many people are are sort of her age feeling like they have to diet themselves into being really underweight and get, you know, plastic surgery and all that. And the fact that she doesn't do it kind of shocks people, but in a good way. I mean, I think she absolutely is beautiful and gorgeous. And so, she's, she's transitioning from being that sort of commercial right. image to real life image and she's transmitting that in a right. way that's honest, I think, that is that is real. And, and that's something that really, it makes it different to me. I mean, you compare it with something like the trajectory of somebody like uh, Chris Christie in New Jersey, for example, who um, combined, uh, you know, I mean, he was extremely overweight. He had, a, a, I guess, a stomach band surgery yep, and right. lost yeah. a lot of weight, oh. but he's still fairly heavy. But one of the things there is that um, he is trying to create an image of a person in charge, a person who's like, you know, tr- could be trusted, say, to be a presidential candidate, you know, somebody that you should listen to his ideas. And then at the same time, he combines that with an incredibly abrasive personality, which induces people to focus on reasons they don't like him. 
And then the fat issue comes up. So he's not a good ambassador for fat. Exactly. And so it's easy. I mean, people In fall into Huckabee easy. kind of is. I mean, Mike yeah. Huckabee feels more like a father. He feels more. So when he brings up the weight, it's like, oh, I totally get where you're coming from as opposed to Chris Christie. Well, yes. Like, it, it, I don't like you because you're fat. Except <laughs> have you noticed that any picture of Huckabee is very carefully never shows him below the shoulders? Right. Uh, because, because he put it, the weight back on. Exactly. And so this is part of the sort of political image that, that, that is being sought here. And it makes it – it's like it, it, it opens a door to a criticism that deflects from whatever political message they might have. And actually I think you know, some, of these, some of these people like Huckabee for example I think has some really fascistic views about stuff. And so yeah. it gets deflected by a discussion of, well, how come we're not seeing his stomach or his behind? You know, it, it's like, it, it, okay, let's just talk about what he just said last week, and it, that that doesn't get followed so strongly. And I wonder if that's an answer because I was wondering. It said in that New York Times article about the politicians that you know women politicians for the most part are out of bounds when they're talking about fat. Like Hillary, no one, right. you know, we rarely hear anyone saying, oh, she's a little, she could she could stand to lose a few pounds, you know. Though we, you know, endlessly dissect what she's wearing, what her hair looks like and all that. And to me, that feels like a sleight of hand because, yes, no, it, we can't talk about her weight, but we can talk about that dress not being the most attractive on her, which to me is often a euphemism for maybe it's a little too far. You know, maybe it's a little too tight or maybe, you know, she should get a different tailor. I think we do talk about it with women. We just know that we can't explicitly say she looks fat. It's also – I think it's, it's such a – I mean almost literally visceral kind of brush off that, that it, it feels it – feels there's, there's a kind of violence to, to talking about it in a way that dismisses somebody. And so if you want to be violent towards say Rush Limbaugh, which a lot of people do, you know, it's a very easy place to go. Right. Um, you know, listen to that fat jerk. Uh, you know, <laughs> and but I mean, it's it, that's such a violent thing to say that I think if you when you say it about somebody like Hillary Clinton, it it feels as though. It's like know. the B word. But I don't know. I, I think people – but people have a lot of violent feelings toward Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't usually come out and say she's fat. But they want to disguise them. Right. Yeah. But they, do they really want to disguise them when they're you know, the people that really have the violent feelings and they're sort of criticizing every other aspect of her? I, I was thinking that maybe fat is connected to sexuality and so someone like her isn't allowed to have – like I mean if Sarah Palin gained weight, we would probably say, oh, she's really fat. You know, in a way that we can't say it to, about Hillary. Interesting. I don't know. Interesting. Let me go to the phones here for a second. Our number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Hi, James. You're on the air. Hey, um, I'm calling uh, because one of the one of the panelists made a comment about um, you know impossibly thin fashion models being a uh, result of the male uh, fantasy, and I think it's worth discussing the fact that a lot of the men behind the fashion industry that are responsible for that look tend to not be sexually attracted to women. Um, I think the fashion piece of that, they, they pick these skinny models because the clothes are supposed to be the centerpiece, not some voluptuous woman wearing the clothes. And I think it's a pretty lame brush off that fashion models are skinny because that's what men sexualize. I think most men would say those girls are too skinny. Um, the ones that would be sexually attracted to them anyway. So. Well, yeah, I always do wonder, like, where the council is that that meets to figure all that stuff out because <laughs> I'm clearly not there. You know, I don't think that a woman who, 
you know, most fashion models look to me like they've just arrived at this by, you know, chain smoking and using cocaine and and barely eating at all. And it's not a particularly attractive look. I, I don't know. I don't exactly know who does come up with that that idea, but. Uh, and it seems to me that the female idealist push is definitely pushing towards a more curvaceous type. Um, yes, you're right. When it comes to fashion models, it is about the clothes and the clothes being a centerpiece. But I think if we talk about female sexuality and what men are attracted to, there's a reason why butt implants are becoming such a thing. <laughs> and it's not because women are looking at each other and being like, yes, that butt is delicious and I want to have one too. It comes from a different kind of external pressure that I think uh, is perhaps male-driven. That is an interesting uh, switch, the whole the whole butt thing, I think, you know, in our culture. But I do think that you can find a lot of men that would say, oh, I, I wouldn't go out with her. She's too fat. Well, I, I want to go back to that what that caller said uh, and talk to the other James about it too because it seems to me, you know, that – when he, when he says the clothes are supposed to be the centerpiece, I think that's the reality with fashion models. It's how close to a hanger or a mannequin yeah, or yeah. some piece of hardware for exhibiting clothes can we t- get a human being to be. Right. Uh, and, and that may – I mean I think the caller was right actually and I, I think that's a very interesting place that if, you, if you're in fact designing clothes as a fashion designer and you are not – Sexually attracted to the models, or you're not that that you're not heterosexual, and so you're thinking in terms more of the aesthetic of the mm-hmm. fashion that you're creating. Then it's not going to be an important point. You're going to be focused on the clothes, and it then does become a sort of detachment. And um, I think that then um, you're creating sort of because there's so much money and image attached to it, it becomes a a, a very widely perceived norm, and then you get these things these, these these things for instance it, it comes into graphic arts when the cover of vogue airbrushes a model's image so that it's actually sort of shaving off certain so that you have a thigh gap so, which let's yeah. be honest yes. most women it's do not trying have. to get rid of <laughs> exactly i mean so you're 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 ending up with this sort of artificiality that is maybe not related to sexuality at right. all well but it it is in the sense of that female sexuality is threatening so the sort of voluptuousness of, of women's sexuality is, is, is stripped bare and to the point that women who are super skinny like that almost don't look like women. You know, um, and so maybe that's part of the part of the point. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. my mind is gravitating towards. I haven't seen the new Frank Sinatra um, documentary, uh, the Alex Gibney one, but uh, you know, famously, when uh, Frank Sinatra wound up with Mia Farrow, Eva Gardner cattily said, "I always knew Frank would wind up with a boy." <laughs> um, um, but because I sort of wonder about that female sexuality is threatening thing. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the answer. I. When I was the history I, of patriarchy, you have yeah. to. You yeah. have I mean, to look I think at you're onto something, and and <laughs> it and it to me it seems like an interesting conversation and dance from women women to women mm. because you can't grow with the exception of butt implants. You can't grow the certain kind of voluptuousness that is sexually powerful, but you can work yourself to a rail thinness that shows your diligence mm. um, and that kind of power. It's very. It's an interesting idea. I'll, yeah. When I was a, a boy approaching puberty and maybe a, a little past puberty, 
I had Sophia Lawrence poster up in my bedroom, and I probably replaced it with Raquel Welch at a certain point. So I certainly wasn't looking for Kate Moss, right. you know? Yeah, they're not exactly <laughs> chubby, though. No. I was going to suggest looking at some film of uh, press conferences of Sophia Loren or Gina Lolo Brigida, for example, you know, in, in the 50s and 60s, uh, who would command a press conference in an openly sort of sexual way of, of, you know, celebrating their bodies and they would be uh, the antithesis of a fashion model, but looking really great, you know, sort of well well dressed. They they picked their clothes carefully, but they had a sense of their sexuality and portrayed it in a way that, you know, is so completely different from a rail thin model who's, as you say, just a hanger for the dress at the time. And when you think of the Margaret Thatchers and the Hillary Clintons of the world, they are not wearing the sexiest, most powerful suit. No. They are it's... covering that part of them that could be. Yeah. Powerful, but in a different way. All right. We had, that was a good conversation. I don't know exactly where we landed, but uh, maybe we didn't have to. That was a good conversation. Let's take a little break. We've got two more topics to get through, uh, so stay with us. All right. Welcome back to The Nose with Tanisha Dugan, Irene Papoulis, James Handley. We don't usually talk about developments in tech, like big tech things uh, on The Nose, because hardly anybody who appears on The Nose is the least bit interested in any of this kinds of kind of tech stuff. And, you know, I kind of wasn't going to talk about the Apple Watch, which came out and uh, had a first day of reviews followed by a second day of reviews. I guess that's probably... You know, that would be happening. A first day would be followed by a second day. But, you know, sort of people saying all this weird stuff. In fact, I, I guided our panelists to this great, uh, this funny little piece where the, somebody took some excerpts um, from Faulkner. some of these reviews and, and some excerpts <laughs> from Faulkner and listed them all together and said, which one's which? Is this a, a review of the Apple Watch or is this from <laughs> Faulkner? That's how, uh, I, I don't know, that's how deep people tried to go about this little device, which, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I think probably I speak for many of the panelists. I barely understand what the Apple Watch is going to do. But apparently it does sort of sync up with your Apple phone and then it does some of the things that your Apple phone did except it's on your wrist. It's also a watch and it tells great time. Um, but there were there was a lot of writing done about whether or not the Apple Watch would somehow or other tear us away from our iPhones enough so that we would, wouldn't be looking at our phones all the time and maybe we'd be looking at each other and communicate with each other more or whether it was actually going to make things worse in that regard by just putting like a whole bunch of human functions into a watch on your wrist. So, um, so Irene, you're not tech-oriented, but you actually live with somebody who's kind of tech-oriented yes. and you've been reading a lot about the Apple Watch and so you're going to have to lead off this discussion yeah. too. All right. Well, I definitely think it's the end of civilization as we know it. I really think – that it's going to be a major change in our culture. I mean, we'll see. But the fact that the Apple Watch allows you to do things on your phone and while nobody necessarily knows you're doing things on your phone. I mean, I know people can do things in their pocket with their phone or under the table. But I, I get the feeling from what I've heard that there's there's quite a bit you can do just by tapping your phone once you become proficient. You mean tapping your watch? Or? I mean, I'm sorry, tapping your watch, yeah, yeah on your wrist. 
Um, and I think there's, you know, I, I think I imagine that we're going to become nostalgic for the days when at least you knew someone was on their phone, you know, walking along. I mean, you know, I hate it if you're at dinner with somebody and they're sitting there. Oh, sorry, I have to take this, you know, every 10 minutes. It's horrible. But um, at least, you know, they're doing it. You know, now you're going to be at dinner with someone and they're going to be having a whole other conversation that you don't even know about. You know, well, there are these situations and dinner is often one of them where you see people kind of lay their phones down on their table like it's there. They've just sort of it's like they have put their marker down. Here's my phone. It may become part of our evening. It may not. And then it flashes. They're like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. (laughs) And what do you do? You just sit there, you know, or you take out your are you supposed to take out, you know, you you sort of feel like, okay, I I guess I should take my phone out, too, because they're taking what am I just going to do? Look around. But I don't want to take interesting. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, talk with somebody at the next table, maybe. Yeah, but but Tanisha also doesn't. I mean, the the other part of this is you know McLuhan talks about how every technological change brings about anxiety. So I mean, whenever we hear about something like this, we chime in with Irene. It's the downfall of civilization. I don't know. I mean, it's hard. I'm on the borderline because I am in a lot of ways an Apple butthole. Like I'm definitely the kind of person (laughs) who loves. Apple products, and I'm excited by this watch, and it does seem quite beautiful, and so I'm what, looking beautiful. forward to... Oh, you mean just physically? Yeah, and so I'm looking for. I am that nerd who will probably go... Yeah. You want one? Yeah, yeah, I do, but I completely agree, because I'm also that person at dinner who is very adamant about no phones at the table. Mm-hmm. So I walk a very weird so analog... So why do you want it? Why do you want it beyond, beyond the beauty of it? Because I want to be cool. Uh, <laughs> no, I actually think I love I just I I love Steve Jobs. I just I I think I'm I'm a part of the cult. James, does she You're really okay. want it or has she been manipulated into having an appetite for things that are really probably. not naturally part of her appetite system? I, I was going to say that you're probably already on the Apple Watch site. I, mean, the- <laughs> I was. And when it came out, and I was the person who went to Apple and they were like, well, I don't know when it's coming out. And I was like, April 9th, you can see it in the store. And they were like, oh, that's good. Well, you how'd you find I, that out? Tanisha, would you be the person who is checking your watch surreptitiously at no. dinner? And I so, also don't wear watches in life, which is why it's very weird that I'm – Neither, neither wa- do I. I, I have watch. an allergy. I can't put things on my wrist. But I, I see this as being something that – you know, it, there's this sort of inevitable march to technology thing. I think I mentioned sometime previously Andrew Keane's book, The Internet is Not the Answer, which I've, I'm now reading for a second time because mm-hmm. it really deals with these issues of how these things affect us. I mean, you, Tanisha, you're talking about having a rule like you won't allow phones at dinner, for example, which is kind of like a small beach to say, well, this technology is not going to rule things all the time. But I go back to thinking about a very basic sort of interruption in life, like you're going to make a purchase in a store and the phone rings and the phone takes precedence because it's a ringing object that needs attention. And so you have to wait for your transaction that you got there first to do. They don't say, well, well, they tell themselves, rarely will they say, you know, can you wait a minute? They'll actually take care of the phone conversation. And so what you're talking about is preemptive behavior. And all of these devices encourage preemptive behavior. And think of the comparison of a now largely failed project, which was Google Glass, which people wouldn't tolerate because it got in your face, like really right in your face. And you felt that they were watching you and that you didn't know what this person was doing. 
And now you look at, uh, okay, the industry has decided basically that that is something. Maybe it will work in factories or in some sort of specialized thing, but right now that's not going to work. So you go to the watch idea and if you think about having a conversation of substance with somebody and in the slightest way, if they just with an ordinary clockwork watch, they just <laughs> briefly – and George Bush, yes. I think, yeah. can yes, testify George that. George H.W. Bush. Just yeah. the, he did it very obviously. But even the slightest mm-hmm. move to like uncover your sleeve, uncover the face of the watch or slightly take your attention away, you've taken away the course of that conversation. No. You've and indicated – says, I don't care what you're saying at the moment. Exactly. <laughs> I care about and what's I'm wondering happening. When that's going to end, and and yeah. I I think actually, uh, um, which is I, what a watch right isn't that in essence what the watch piece is? It's the thing that you look at when you're like, how yes, much longer is exactly. this going? You're <laughs> making you're making a measure of what is being said and its significance in your life. And I actually think that people won't be able to conceal this because mm-hmm. much as it's a subtler device than the phone, yeah. you are going to see body language. You're going to see people disengaged. And I think this goes to the heart of the nature of the sort of electronification and the, 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 the taking away of human contact that has so many threads. And I, I think that's a really significant thing. Well, in that sense, it's just, it's just more of the phone. Well, right? no, because I, they're I, already doing that? Or, or what, I mean, I love what James is saying because in a way they're taking the watch which, which really has been maybe for a century a symbol of I'm not really paying attention to you or I want this thing to be over or something like that. And they're loading all of the stuff from the phone into it. <laughs> right. You know, they're taking something that's sort of an older symbol uh, of that and, and then taking a lot of the content that's been in the phone that's been sort of a newer form of interference and putting it back where it was in the first right, place. Right. So it's like not only am I checking my phone, I'm having a conversation with two other people. And how can you – you continue that serious conversation where you have to repeat what you've said or like the breaking the thread of a serious conversation. You, I mean, you can't, you can't restore exactly. that. It's gone. And that's the part that I am actually in agreement with Irene on where it's the end of civilization because I do think that real human interaction is important. Yeah, absolutely. I want to know absolutely. what you have to bring to me that right. this device cannot. Yes, yeah, This is one of, the, one of the points that was made in one of the articles. Uh, it was the New Republic piece that we saw that uh, begins with this notion that was suggested by I think one of the people from Apple, uh, either that or one of the earlier uh, interpreters, earliest interpreters of the watch, that instead of going to the front desk of a hotel, you'd have everything in your watch. You just, you know, you'd go by the front desk, you'd go to your room, which you already knew the location of, and you'd wave it at the at the sensor there, and you'd be in your room, and that would be the end of all that. And it did kind of amuse me because the um, one of the premises of the new Al Pacino movie, Danny Collins, is that he falls in love with Annette Benning, who's the you know woman mm-hmm. at the front desk of the hotel. So, in the Apple Watch world, they never meet. You know, yeah. It makes and, me think of the time you were talking about your trip to Montreal and when you were finding the best restaurants to go to, you didn't look to your phone and say, let me read the Yelp review of the best mm-hmm. restaurants. You literally talked to the humans that work in the industry and said, tell me what the best and restaurants are. Like, And in so doing, you didn't put yourself in the way of a Yelp campaign that right. has created a falsehood <laughs> about right. the restaurant that you could, you're going to choose. Though sometimes they have really good picks. But um, <laughs> um, I think the thing that, yeah, that that, um, that guy said in that article is that we ha- will have much less interaction with strangers, you know, and I think and that's just a... Working that, class poor people. And, and working class poor people <laughs> in the hotel, you know, or, but I mean, even, like I went into, I had to send a fax the other day and I went into the you know, place and there was just a machine put in your credit card, you know, and I just felt so empty. You know, there was just an emptiness about not having somebody say, hi, you know, you know, what do you want to do? Here's your facts, you know. So that's, uh, you know, 
from from the consumer's perspective, but from the worker's perspective, too. First of all, half the people get get fired. So there's that many fewer jobs. And there's just there isn't that interaction, that daily interaction with a diverse range of people, which is just awful. And as a Steve Jobs lover, that's the thing about the watch that scares me. Mm-hmm. The fact that it is no longer a device that sort of levels the playing field amongst mm-hmm. us all, but that there's clearly a hierarchy and a caste system and a... Yeah. And it's like who even gets the watch, you right. mean, yeah. in the first Starting place. there, but yeah. also that we are encouraging a life where I only have to deal with people of my own class right because well, i don't have I, to i think that goes to the others. heart of that thing about uh, about what andrew keen was writing about about the internet is that the internet and the d- sort of silicon valley intelligentsia who purvey this mm-hmm. are really putting themselves in a place where they control enormous amounts of resources and power and social power and it devalues the connections that the ordinary people have. Just the fact that, for instance, by using Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of those things, it's free labor that they then turn around and sell and make a huge amount of money of and then produce products that increase that relationship. And we don't get to have the discussion about whether you know we're being dangled all of these enticements without having to actually have a discussion about where did that human contact go? Right. It's All the right. end of civilization, like that's I why, said. That's why we talk about it on the nose. All right, we've got a little bit of time here just to switch gears one last time. If you're listening and you're thinking about calling, we have the excellent Lydia Brown on the phones right now. Don't call about fat and don't call about phones. Uh, we're, we're switching topics. We're going to talk about where quotes come from. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266. So this week... Uh, the United States Postal Service has unveiled the new Maya Angelou stamp. I will probably be getting some of them because I really like stamps anyway. And um, But, I mean, my enjoyment of them will be tinctured a little bit by the fact that right next to the picture of Maya Angelou is uh, this line, a bird doesn't sing because he has an answer. It sings because he has a song, which apparently is not actually something that Maya Angelou wrote. It's something that she l- liked to say in conversation. It kind of fit, obviously, with the title of perhaps her most famous book. Uh, so she she would say it, but it was actually written by somebody named Joan Walsh Angland. Uh, however, the U.S. Postal Service did not bother to check this out. It had or, bird and singing it. So yeah, like, exactly, it sounds kind of close, like a poem seems she like wrote something she'd say. No, and they, I'm sure they they used uh, what's what's the name of the, what's the name of that book you keep talking about? The internet. The internet is not the answer. All right, so they probably thought the internet was the answer. <laughs> I think they totally googled. They, t- they googled some stuff and you they know, got it, this quote, and then it's on the stamp. The good thing is that if you buy these stamps, they'll probably go up in value because my guesses they may pull it and change it. Yes, <laughs> yeah. it with something correct. So but, get it while you can. But is it just me? But it seems to me not devaluing the actual original writer of the quote who was writing something different. Isn't that exactly sort of, to me, the opposite of what I know why the cage bird sings is about? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I just, like, it, it suddenly struck me. I looked at that and I thought, what are they thinking? Has nobody at the post office read that? And I feel like every time I'm on, I go there. But that is exactly the thing that made, me the, that made my blood boil the most. Yeah, is that it was like, exactly. all right, this is something along the lines of what yeah. she said yeah, once upon a, a time. Yeah, but it's just a trivialization, so, actually, 180 degrees from what it meant. It, it, this then sort of kicked off a, a conversation. Well, the, the Times has a piece by Erica McKean today about sort of where quotes come from. She herself has had one of her quotes, not a particularly memorable or <laughs> but a weird quote, a weird a quote of hers that, that has been attributed to Diana, to Diana Vreeland and God knows who else. Um, and, but first of all, I was delighted to find out that there's something called a gnomologist, which is a quotations <laughs> expert, uh, and they do run around trying to figure out who said what. 
They're going to have a rough time on Pinterest. Yes. Because that is in essence what Pinterest is. Those photos of random quotes that are never correctly attributed to the right person. Pin to a picture. But it's sort of – it's a problem. There's even a word for it. It's called Churchillian drift, uh, which is (laughs) that uh, if if you don't know who said something, you assume – there are these sort of alpha – quoters, right? <laughs> it's Mark Twain, it's Edmund Burke, it's Oscar Wilde, and it's Winston Churchill, and I'm sure there's two or three other people. Um, but I don't know, does that, does, does it, as a scholar, uh, how did you react to this controversy? Um, well, as a scholar, or as you a, know, or as I mean, a woman. you have to, as a, <laughs> or as just, as a citizen, yeah. I mean, I do think the stamp thing is outrageous, you know, and that's a very extreme, as, as Colin pointed out, too, that that's a very extreme example of you know, it's just, it's just, there's just no way to justify that that's okay. Um, but I think some of the other ones, you know, it's probably true as a scholar, I would say that it's never okay to, to misquote something. But I like to think about why is it that we want to be so sure that the actual quote is attributable to the actual right person, you know, and it just got me thinking about how we always, you know, where do we get our ideas? We always sort of hear somebody say something and then maybe we'll say the same thing in a conversation as though we just thought of it. And, you know, just that whole thing that that ideas are so fluid, especially with our access to the Internet. But but then it's like, but wait a minute, you have to you own them and the people who write them own them. And I don't know. I mean, because I do get upset. I would get upset if I said, oh, Mark Twain said this. I read it on the Internet and then I found out he hadn't. I would feel horrible and I would want to, you know, find the source. So. I don't know. I'm sort of confused. I think that's a very good point, actually, about how when you're in regular conversation, I mean, you as a human being, you're a product of what you read and see and hear and like all of the sort of underlying intellectual activity that goes on. And you're not going to stop and say, oh, by the way, Mark Twain said that or something (laughs) like that. But I think that there is a distinction when you start to use quotations in a way that, um, you know, is beyond – I mean it's one thing to say a stitch in time or something like that and it becomes a sort of meme in the, in, the, in the language. But I think that if you're putting something on a stamp, for example, or if a politician misquotes somebody, you know, where it's used with material effect – I think that then I think it's perfectly legitimate to go after the source and to find out, you know, well, wait a minute, uh, you, you, how are you doing this? Maybe you, for instance, cut off a quote. Maybe you, maybe you said the first half and then the second half said something completely different. Um, I, I, I mean, then it becomes important. It, it is. There, there are quotes that kind of could be in the public domain, but they here's the this is the the flip side of it. The obverse of it is there are quotes that people are always attributing to people that in fact nobody knows their origins. One of them is it's always attributed if it's attributed at all to Edmund Burke. That whole thing, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. The truth is nobody's really sure who said that, um, but it sounds cool if you say that it's Edmund Burke because then you know who Edmund Burke is. Um, and and the, uh, one that I was I, spent, I saw that name somewhere. Yeah, and I spent a lot of time this year trying to track down uh, the quote, history doesn't repeat, uh, but it rhymes, which, which I love. It's just a great quote. And it, it, once again, through Churchillian drift, it is usually attributed to Twain. There is no real evidence that Mark Twain ever said that. It might be like a legitimate oral tradition, public domain quote. 
like, you know, most things in the blues, I don't know who said I hate to see that evening sun go down. <laughs> you know? it's, it's part of a tradition, right? Um, and, but yet there's, part, there's some part of it that wants to pin it on somebody. We do. I mean, first of all, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, you, you can get expelled from school for, for, for you know, mis- misattributing quotes in your, in your paper, mm-hmm. you know. And so in the academic world, it really is, you know, in a way that's one of, one of our guiding principles is that everyone has to have their own language and everyone has, you know, you, if you're going to use somebody else's, you have to cite it c- correctly. So um, I wonder if we're changing, like the, the rest of the world, maybe outside the, the academic world, to some extent is kind of moving in a direction of, yeah, well, you know, we're all re- we're, people are just repeating it and somebody says something really good on a blog and then somebody else picks it up and that's just what happens. You know, I don't if, know. If I mean, people are being expelled, I want to be like a, a gnomologist, <laughs> uh, an, an expert witness for their defense. You know, maybe I can actually convince the board that they shouldn't be expelled. We do have to take Doris a quick Kearns break Goodwin's here. did it, you, well, know, you could th- say. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't drag her through the mud. I don't need to do that to win this <laughs> argument. All right, we have to take a little break. We'll come back after this. Reading a phrase, if anyone asks you if my arms will ever let you free, don't worry about an answer, baby. Just quote me. To quote Simon Cowell, what did I do? Killed them all, of course. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf. We had help on the phones from Lydia Brown. The part of Bill Curry was played by Oscar Wilde. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff fattening food for Candace Bergen, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday's show, we're back with The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. Whoop, here we go. We're going back. Uh, we're having a really interesting gnomological conversation <laughs> here. Uh, but, Colin uh, is a definitely gnomologist. I, I feel like I could be yes. one. Like if oh, I, yeah. if I have, my last career move might be that I could be a gnomologist. I have to figure out whether you say that or gnomologist. But I say, I'm saying gnomologist. Gnomologist sounds good. So you get you a nice a pointy hat. Right, yes, exactly. Does it have to do with gnomes? I, you know, I don't I haven't done that kind of research yet. But I also re- but you do, will. I do remember that uh, Cyril Richard as Captain Hook in the original <laughs> said, that's where the cancer gnaws. Uh, <laughs> yes, the canker. That's where the canker gnaws. Yeah, that's a good uh, so I like saying gnomologist. All right, really quickly, uh, here's – oh, it's Oppie. Hi, Oppie. Hi, how are you guys doing? Good. Um, so I was just – my favorite of these is the one that's sometimes attributed – bizarrely to Abraham Lincoln, because it doesn't even sound like something the guy we know from history would say, which is, you see it in movie reviews or theater reviews a lot, where they say, as Lincoln said, that's the sort of thing one likes if one likes that sort of thing. <laughs> right. I don't know if any of you have heard of that. It's sort of this kind of ride. I mean, it's very Oscar Wilde, right? Yeah. But, but it gets attributed to Abraham Lincoln. He never said it, but nobody knows who did, I think. But it's, it's just bizarre, because you'd think you know, wouldn't our, our horses sense tell us that doesn't sound like him? But no, that's right. It doesn't sound like him. It sounds more like Twain. It also sounds Twain. a little bit like in, in Inherit the Wind uh, when Darrow is. Uh, he says uh, when he's who's the guy and the other guy in Inherit the Wind? Who's uh, the, the, the well, William Jennings? Yeah, Bryan, he's, 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 uh, he's talking to William Jennings Bryan, and Bryan says, "I don't think about those things." And, right, and, and right. Darrow says, "What about the things that you do think about? Do you think <laughs> about them?" Um, uh, it's a little bit like that. All right, we have to move on to endorsements, or I'll fry the clock here. I'll get in all kinds of trouble. So it's time for. Uh, I think I would be a good gnomologist. Yeah, though. I mean, yes. I've just got the, these things. All right, go ahead. It's time to endorse. Um, 
I just have a cooking one, actually, because the other night I, I always make um, roasted Brussels sprouts, and uh, but I got sick of them, but I wanted to make some Brussels sprouts, so I chopped up a Granny Smith apple and an onion and then put a lot of curry powder in cayenne and roasted them with Brussels sprouts, and it was fantastic, and olive oil. Brussels sprouts papoulas. Uh, and I like the way she just she just dove away from the microphone when she was done with that. It was like, like that's it. <laughs> that's all. I'm not even going to answer questions about it. That's it. Brussels sprouts, pabulas. All right. You may have to jot that down because people will have to put it up on the web and uh, we'll challenge the Faith Middleton show. All right. Uh, James, what have you got? Um, I just wanted to give a recommendation of the Cafe Mantic in Willimantic, uh, which increasingly is becoming a really amazing place to eat. It's simple. Um, the food taste is really good. It's just a wonderful place, and it's a chance to visit Willimantic, which is sort of coming alive, and uh, always follow it with a, a wonderful walk through the Victorian houses on the hill. It's a, it's a great place, but Cafe Mantic is really an amazing discovery. And then one other thing, um, we have a rare event that comes about once yearly at Sydney Studio on Sunday afternoon at 2.30, Le Brasier Ardent, which is a silent film that means the burning crucible. We have the wonderful, talented pianist, uh, Patrick Miller, who will be playing for it. And it's a really amazing film full of passion and deception and, and shocking scenes. Um, all silent films, uh, all silent and with incredible music. It creates a magic that you would not believe if you've never been to a silent film. So highly recommended. All right, Tanisha Dugan. That's a good one. I'm going to check that one out for sure. Um, I want to endorse the YWCA and their empowerment for women luncheon yesterday. Mm-hmm. I was. It's been two almost two years since I've been back to back home to Connecticut since I moved back here, and I was so overwhelmed by how many amazing women are here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sometimes something you forget when you're away from home when you live here. You're like, oh, God, get me away from home. But when you return, you're reminded about how wonderful the folks are from where you came from. It is, so a, great, when, it is a great event. Um, yeah. I used to go every year. I used to be invited to a table every year. And I did see, see the, uh, at that time, somewhat svelte Candice Bergen uh, speak <laughs> at, the, at the Women's Empowerment uh, YMC, YWCA luncheon. So one of these things that I sort of met, uh, Bear, Bold, and Beautiful is is a new company founded by this brown woman. And one of the things I loved about her was this bear to encourage ladies to wear makeup less often, uh, which just seemed to feel right for where I am in my life right now. So I wanted to endorse that. All right. Uh, Tonight, uh, come to the mouth. That's uh, Kion Wolf's uh, uh, hosted uh, storytelling session to the Mark Twain House. Starts at 730. Admission is just $5. The uh, theme tonight is Throne for a Loop, Stories with Twists and Turns, part of a week-long storytelling uh, series in the city called The Thread. Uh, On Monday, come to the Institute. I want to endorse the Institute Library in New Haven anyway. It's just this great place. It's probably the most steampunk place in Connecticut. Uh, And we're going to be there uh, talking at noon about the Bobby Seale trial 45 years ago, we're going to have people who lived through the May Day event uh, in 1970. It's, we're going to sort of tape a show there. It won't be live. Uh, but we'd love to have you come join us at the Institute Library. Um, Eddie Murphy has been uh, named <laughs> to win the Mark Twain Award this year. I want to recommend the movie Bowfinger, which I think is an overlooked underappreciated, incredible Eddie Murphy performance. And then I'm, I'm not going to work. I'm going to have a tape show on Thursday because I'm going to James's Theater at 2 o'clock where the hard problem, Tom Stoppard, live from London. Nice. I got to be there.
As Han Solo said, live long and prosper. Lydia Brown, what? First of all, that was Spock. And second, too soon. I thought Spock said, I've got a bad feeling about this. <laughs>